Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I am your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and online mentorship. Check it out at tkex.org. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, leave us a rating and subscribe so we can continue delivering high quality content. I'm joined today all the way from across the globe, Rika Holopainen, and I really hope I pronounced your name <laughs> relatively okay there, Rika. So she is a, a researcher, awesome researcher, a clinical physiotherapist and undergoing her PhD. We're going to chat mainly about her 2018 paper and also a couple of her 2020 papers, which has been out on social media recently and really keen to dive into some of the, the themes of her research. So thank you so much, Rika, for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure. Awesome. So Rika, we wanted to dive into your 2018 paper. So the, the first one, what were the main findings that you found from, from the study? Okay, so um, for the listeners who are not uh, maybe uh, familiar with that paper, so uh, it was about um, people um, who have low back pain. And I interviewed uh, 17, 17 people uh, in Finland. Uh, about their conceptions, uh, about their encounters in uh, in healthcare system, and uh, what we found uh, that there were quite variable experiences for the people. So some were really uh, uh, disappointing, and uh, like they described them as non-encounters, like the uh, professional not really being present, but uh, just physically there, but mentally probably probably not, and being bounced back and forth between different professionals and stuff like that and not being listened to interrupted uh, and not taken seriously that kind of experiences and on the other end uh, so the people describe uh, their experiences as uh, the professor professionals helping them towards autonomic agency like where they could take take control of, of their situation uh, and uh, like uh, important aspects towards that were like uh, the professionals were able to help them regain hope and uh, some even started finding a new way of living totally like they understood that their lifestyle was was like too stressful that that caused their uh, their problems with their well-being and uh, the important thing was that the uh, the professional even though they were not in the end not needed anymore because they were quite uh, rich independent so there was possibility to contact uh, the professional if, if it was needed so those were the two uh, like ends of the spectrum but you want us to go through the uh, like uh, categories yeah. in more detail yeah definitely so I'll, I'll outline the the categories for the listeners mm -hmm. so the the first one as you mentioned was the non-encounters then we mm -hmm. kind of progress into number two was seeking support where it was a confident thorough assessment to kind of understand um, and easy to understand language then it moved on to empowering the corporation so that there's kind of shared decision making and then move on mm -hmm. to the auto autonomic agency so yeah, if, if, if you don't mind going through some of the main kind of points from from those categories and mainly how, what were the kind of transition periods so what were the critical aspects to go from that category the first category onto the last category yeah uh maybe something something i need to mention first like this uh, the analysis was done with phenomenographic method which means that uh we are looking at uh different ways of understanding a phenomenon 
and the end result is this kind of category system where uh, where we, we see the variation in different kind of uh, kind of experiences of the people who we interviewed and there are different themes going through the categories and um, then we see some some critical aspect that may be seen as stepping stones more towards maybe like a better care experience in this uh, this context uh, but yeah the uh the non-encounters theme was the kind of lowest theme where where there were actually the negative um uh, experiences and to uh get to the second second theme which was uh called seeking support so uh it was important uh that the healthcare uh, professional first of all was present uh, actually uh there also mentally and and listen to uh to the patient and and that the patients started to understand their pain because uh quite many people were uh quite confused what the pain was about and there were a lot of mixed uh, messages from from the professionals um and um they um to to go further up uh, in the categories uh towards uh, the second uh, next one which was uh, empowering collaboration so uh the creation of Therapeutic alliance was important. Um, the um, uh, patients needed to be convinced about the explanations and uh, like uh, assessment and and um, examination done by uh, the physiotherapist um, to move up up there. And uh, the professional needed to be reliable in the sense that uh, there was a clear plan and uh, and they were trustworthy like they had the feeling that they they were taking care of and uh, um, still towards the uh, the highest category the autonomic agency so uh, yeah the the most important thing seemed to be like that the patient uh, got back in charge that they were not uh, uh, going around in the healthcare system but uh, they started to understand their own situation and they had uh, something they could do do that by themselves and the professionals could help them towards that uh, and yeah well i already already mentioned that there needed to be help available that they didn't feel left alone either so so i think those those would be uh, the most important points there hmm. and i really love the the name of the category non-encounter it's like the person yeah. wasn't even there so that's yeah. a really great way of describing it and, and what i'm hearing is that the importance of like showing that you are listening to the, the patients yeah. and the clinician, showing understanding and, and reflecting back and, and having that kind of shared decision-making approach mm -hmm. rather than being like the, the authoritative um, figure. Yeah. It's more of that interactor model. Yeah. And quite many uh, patients said that uh, they were interrupted and they felt like they were in a hurry and, and they felt like that. Um, and even some doctors have said that, what are you doing here that I have more important patients to take care of? I just go home. So quite, uh, quite negative uh, experiences as well. Mm, it, and so mm, sad to see, to, to hear. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, but yeah, of course, uh, many of the people then uh, had met someone who had taken them seriously. So even one, uh, one good encounter could shift the, the whole, whole whole like uh, life of a person uh, towards better if, if that was um, 
that was happening at the right time and in the right place, I think. So I think it, that's a message for us professionals. We want to be that person who, uh, who might be the first one to really listen and, and create the feeling of understanding and being taken seriously and caring, caring for other people. So that's maybe one of the most important messages that I've learned from listening to these people. That's great. That's, so we have some sense of hope that even if someone has been stuck in that, that cycle mm -hmm. of depersonalized care and in the medical mm -hmm. system that we can help uh, them kind of feel validated at the yeah. first start and then being able to move mm -hmm. on towards that self, the agency, the, the self-efficacy mm -hmm. that they need for their care. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think, uh, yeah, building a self-efficacy uh, on top of a good therapeutic alliance and a good, um, like, uh, follow-up and a plan. So those, those would be based on this, the, the important things there. Awesome. And one of the, the things that also struck out to me reading that paper was the, one of the examples of, of um, what patients find unhelpful was when mm. the clinician overtreats uh, overtreats us unnecessarily. So what yeah. were some examples that you had from, from the interviews of, of the overtreatment? Yeah, okay. Uh, for example, one lady, uh, she had neck pain. Uh, she uh, actually had also back pain while she was interviewed for this study, but she had an episode of neck pain and uh, she went to physiotherapy and uh, they gave her acupuncture, if I remember correctly, and um, she was fine. Her neck was fine after two, two appointments, but they told her that she needs to come back for the whole 10 times that her doctor had prescribed because they, they explained her that if she doesn't come, so the neck pain will come back. And she was furious. Like she, she said that she's never going to go back to private practice because they are just stealing her money. But she was too nice not to say something, something, and she just went there. So that kind of experiences. But that was, yeah, doesn't, just... Doesn't take uh, ethical healthcare boxes, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough, like, doing business, <laughs> business, but being ethical in, in that sense. So, but I, I think <laughs> ethics need to go, go before for business in our field. Definitely. And, and so in that case, they had 10 sessions or many more sessions approved already in, in her plan? Or what was the kind of story for her? Oh, yeah. In Finland, we have this kind of system that uh, the doctor uh, writes a referral to physiotherapy. Um, nowadays, we also have direct access to physiotherapy, but a couple of years back, so we only, only uh, could have um, uh, been uh, funded by government. There is a small, uh, small like, uh, I don't know how you, how you call it, but you get a couple of euros back from the, uh, from the uh, government if you have the doctor's referral. So people can come also without the referral. But in this case, she had a referral from a doctor that said 10 times. And, uh, but it's not that you need to use the 10 times, it's just the maximum amount. And, and basically we should use what we need. But some, sometimes what, what seems to have happened here is that they, uh, they used it for business. Yeah, conflict of interest there. So definitely. Yeah. Definitely a red flag there for, for the, <laughs> the mix of, of business and, and healthcare. It's, it's a difficult topic. And over here we yeah. have, or at least in my state, we have uh, eight approved sessions at a time for yeah. a lot of yeah. say, workers' compensation schemes. So, so exactly the same. If, and for the listeners out there, if, if we get someone better and back into their full function and meaningful activities in, in two sessions, 
maybe have a question about if we need the extra six sessions would be a good takeaway. Yeah, I think that's, and we already start to have some tools like for low back pain, uh, we can use start back screening tool for, uh, for thinking a little bit how much uh, management this person is probably going to need. It's not definitive, but it, it would give us some ideas who is going to get better, uh, better with just a little bit of advice and who is going to need more of our support. And that's how we can like uh, use the resources more wisely, like to have have enough of time for those who really need us and then not to over treat those who, who would get better anyway because that's a big proportion of, of our patients i guess yeah hence the value of the, of the screening tools prior to, to yeah. figure out how much care someone needs mm -hmm. awesome enrique i wanted to ask about the your two papers this year so i wanted to mm -hmm. to touch on the qualitative paper first of all if, if you want to go through the the main findings from, from the uh, CFT related paper. Okay, so um, uh, we trained uh, physios for, for CFT. Peter O'Sullivan came, came together with Stephen Vinton here uh, in Finland 2016, and the physios got four to six days of, uh, of CFT training. So that was a brief training and they didn't get any mentoring and uh, uh, other support. They just had a web-based platform with some uh, materials, but they were kind of left alone after the training. Um, and I interviewed the physios after after the training, and um, uh, basically, what we found out was again also here it was a phenomenographic study as well. So uh, the experiences of the physios varied a lot. Like um, uh, to um, summarize shortly, so. Uh, in the beginning in the training so there was uh, quite a lot of resistance uh, because cft was quite different from what the physios had been taught before like uh, most of the participants had quite biomedical background and, and training so this was a big change and uh, um, the, they described it as like being shaken or uh, they felt like they've been in a washing machine or tumble dryer <laughs> for the for the four days of training so some people didn't sleep during the night because they were thinking about everything. <laughs> uh, and uh, so um, that was kind of a big thing. And I think at, at first that was maybe a negative experience for some, but many realized that that was needed. Otherwise, if they wouldn't have felt shaken, so they wouldn't have changed anything in their practice. So that started a process of re reflection about their own ways of working. And uh, for, for some of the participants and uh, kind of uh, continuous learning learning journey that didn't stop uh, at the training, but they, they continued um, trying to implement it in their practice for, for a long time after, after the training. And um, what, what the training also made for them. So some realized that we can be creative in our job. They have the permission for it now because previously they've been stuck to some formulas and structures and going through some structured uh, interview without really listening to the story of the person. So, so those are, were quite important shifts there. Mm. The, the first one was like the, they kind of had expectancy Violation is the term they kind yeah, of yeah. Uh, saw in a similar way we, we can get an experiential learning or movement experiment for a, a patient we, they yeah. had for themselves and then they yeah. had to reconcile all their past kind of learnings with, with the, yeah. the current, what they just experienced. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think it was important to notice this, that nothing was kind of excluded, that it's not a strict method. It's so they could use a lot of skills they had previously. Like um, uh, many of the physios had a long experience behind them and they had been like, uh, when they've been studying in the 80s, so there, there were a lot of uh, training in uh, relaxation techniques, breathing techniques and stuff like that. They had been forgetting uh, during the years when we've been going more to movement control and, and uh, stabilizing exercises. And now they could reuse their, their previous skills. Uh, and they were quite, quite happy about that, many That's of great. them. So, yeah, so it's more this kind of mixing and matching, matching also, also. But yeah, there is a lot of probably thinking going through that whether this is going to work and, and is this the right way? And then, then it's really easy to go back to old habits when, when you don't have support. So when you face trouble, trouble with the patients and, and the, the new way doesn't work, so then, then you go back, back and do what, what you're used to and what you're kind of uh, confident with. So quite many, many physios, uh, there were only in some places uh, there was only one physio who participated to training so they didn't really have anybody to talk talk to about these things and that was that was a big barrier for learning so that so, kind of support was needed for them to yeah. kind of bridge the gap between what they learned in that short amount of time and then being mm. able to implement it in their practice and that's kind of one of the, the themes that i took as well from your uh, the systematic review that we'll, we'll talk yeah. about very shortly so that was that that kind yeah. of needed that experiential learning and and what you mentioned yeah. in, in, uh, that they could use some of their past techniques perhaps with yeah. a completely different narrative when they had gone through the the breathing from the the 80s when they had yeah. learned it last yeah 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 but we can go back to that when we talk about the uh, systematic review because that's an in, in, interesting topic topic that where we got more insights from the review a uh, couple of things that uh, that came up in the uh, Finnish study that didn't come up in um, a systematic review uh, that were interesting because uh, the training was in English and the, they were native Finnish speakers and the English skills were not perfect for everybody. So that's something we need to consider when we're outside uh, the English speaking countries and, and do training. So we need to really uh, consider uh, carefully whether, whether we find a way to teach them in their own language. And also things like uh, some people um, had some personal issues going on in their lives and uh, some other studies going around and they didn't have the possibility to concentrate on, on learning. And they were kind of feeling sorry, sorry about that because they couldn't, couldn't really take, take from the training what they could, could have. So that's something we need to consider when we're training people. So there, there is always life is going to happen. <laughs> happen and there are going to be things uh things uh as barriers for le learning so how can we support these people better so that the participants had their own constraints with with life happening and i imagine a lot of people have their families of their own and, and other time uh commitments yeah. right yeah so we can't just assume that they are uh, putting 100 percent effort in uh in a training training so there needs to be some kind of flexibility uh, for, for the for the training if we want to train people until competency in in some uh some approach awesome i wanted to to dive into the systematic review now so so it talks about the physiotherapist perceptions 
um, of, of learning a biopsychosocial approach to musculoskeletal yeah. pain. So I wanted to dive into the, the, main, the main findings and, and in particular, the, the ones that were surprising to you. So if we dive into the, the, the main findings first. Yeah, okay. So uh, first of all, uh, there were 12 studies that, that used really different kind of approaches. There were some, some uh, were trained in CFT, but then uh, there was ACT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, start back approach and, uh, and stuff like that. And the training, the length of the training varied a lot. So the shortest training was 10 hours and the longest training was 150 hours. So quite a bit variability. And, and that's something that is related to what surprised me is that um, when we did a sensitivity analysis, which means that uh, we were looking at what kind of themes were found in which studies. So um, there were a lot of um, uh, positive changes for the physios, like their understanding and uh, practice uh, seemed to have changed, but there were also uh, like clinical challenges they faced. And we seem to uh, notice that the, the challenges were uh, not so different uh, in the studies who, who had used a long training uh, compared uh, to those who had a short, shorter training. So, so then we started thinking that uh, maybe it's uh, not just about the length of training, but maybe uh, the different kinds of physios and different kinds of backgrounds and, and uh, different kinds of learning goals that there are. And maybe maybe other other factors that affect the learning process, and we need to take into consideration. Like we can't probably train everybody the same, so um, we need to uh, somehow individualize. Like we individualize the uh, the management for our patients, so maybe we need to individualize the training training more more and see uh, who's who's actually gonna need support and. Somebody is going to have more background in biopsychosocial approach and other one is going to be already more uh, um, uh, competent in, um, what would I say, some exam or uh, communication and other ones going to have their strengths elsewhere. So, so that's something based on this we maybe, maybe should uh, think about more when we're planning. Definitely. Uh, but also, yeah, the support and the long-term uh, uh, training, not just what we did in our study, like four to six days, but, but uh, the implementation studies seem to show that uh, it's not really clear what are the, uh, the elements for a successful implementation, but what it looks like that uh, some kind of support and, and long-term long -term, uh, training would be beneficial. So what I took is as well, we are so, we forget that clinicians are people as well, that we need a person-centered approach to, to yeah. clinicians and therapists as, as, we, as we teach and as, as we learn these, these approaches. So maybe we need mm -hmm. that individualized, individualized approach as, as, you, as you mentioned, which would make, I imagine some of the studies a bit more challenging to, to implement and, 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 and mm -hmm. see. Yeah, yeah. And I think one important thing would be like, um, if I could choose now, so I would train the whole work community and uh, to have their bosses uh, included so that we can change uh, the organizational practices. Because if, if the people don't feel like they have enough time with their patients or not good referral pathways, uh, if they don't have a psychologist where to uh, like uh, send their patients to or uh, or uh, a doctor, so so probably some some of the uh, physios are not gonna ask questions about the psychosocial 
issues because they're afraid of opening the Pandora's box. So uh, there, there were a couple of uh, quite clear uh, quotations where, where people said that, uh, how, how am I gonna ask an open-ended question? Because I'm out of time right away. So, so those are big, big things. And also, yeah, the support uh, to, to have some kind of mentoring or peer, peer support. And uh, that would be maybe the minimal requirements <laughs> that, that need to uh, be considered for the training. Train the, the whole kind of clinic, so all their colleagues and the environment, so they have that supportive mm. network to implement yeah. the practice and then in, uh, allow for ongoing support and mentorship throughout yeah. the process. And it, mm, but if that's not possible, like we need to train individual uh, physios or other professionals, so... So then at least to create a, uh, some kind of community where they can, can have support. So that can be within the uh, people who attend the training or, or I don't know, whatever, but we need to, uh, we can't leave people alone. And, and on top of that, the, it doesn't, it takes more than just a weekend workshop. It sounds like. Um, yeah. You can't expect yeah. clinical behavioral change with, with just a weekend. No, uh, the research seems to sh show that, uh, the weekend workshops may change our beliefs and attitudes, but uh, to really change our practice and the patient outcomes, we need something more. We don't quite know yet what, but, uh, but these kind of uh, things that we, we talked about today, so, so might be, might be something, something to consider. And that, touching on that first theme, the, the change understanding and, and practice into mm -hmm. more of a biopsychosocial understanding, mm -hmm. Uh, so some of the physiotherapists reported that they'd started to use the skills outside of just the, the chronic back pain yeah. population. And I'm wondering on, on your take, if, if we can apply the same approach to say someone with experiencing acute pain, what do you think? Should it be different? Um, I think, uh, and there have been actually quite nice articles lately about like, we need to get out of silos when we're treating, uh, treating people with musculoskeletal uh, problems. Uh, I think the basic principles, if we think about like uh, therapeutic alliance uh, as important, so it's the same, uh, like giving support, uh, looking at uh, those people who, are, who have the risk of chronification. So uh, I think that doesn't change whether it's a back pain or a knee pain or, or something. And uh, in the acute care setting, we still, still need the com good communication to uh, reassure people. Um, and uh, to uh, uh, like boost people's self-efficacy in, uh, in self-management skills, like also those, those who, who we feel like, uh, and, and maybe the questionnaires show that, that are not gonna need that much support. So we still, still need that, not to, and not to use scary language and stuff like that. Even though the guidelines say in the acute uh, setting, so uh, so the most important thing we can do is to uh, tell people to stay active uh, despite the pain and uh, uh, yeah, to reassure them. So it's like uh, so with, with humans, regardless. Mm -hmm, yeah, yeah. So I think those those still apply, and uh, yeah, but uh, they're in the acute setting. So so the screening for, for the um, yellow flags, so the psychosocial and also lifestyle risk factors and the comorbidities. So, so that would be important alongside with the, that we don't just look at the physical side, even though it's acute, acute thing. So because it's we know that there are, mm, yeah, yeah, go ahead. 
so we still go through the screening process. We still go through the communication skills. So would you foresee then perhaps a, a bit more of a, a shift in the future? I know it's a long shot to try and predict this, where we have this biopsychosocial approach to, to all facets of, of musculoskeletal care, not just the, the commonly, um, what's common in the literature, the chronic low back pain patient. What do you think? Uh, so you mean that, do I think that, it, that it, we're going to be able to use, use it in, in different contexts? Okay, yeah. I think there is more uh, research coming up, uh, uh, at least what I, uh, if I remember correctly, at Curtin, they are doing research on CFT, on uh, knee, knee OA and hip, hip pain and uh, neck pain. And there are a lot of other projects uh, doing uh, biopsychosocial approaches for, for different kind of, kinds of um, uh, problems. So I think uh, we are getting more uh, knowledge soon. <laughs> Uh, soon about this but it, of course low back pain is most common so we have uh, most research on it and it, it's kind of leading the way i guess but i think others are gonna gonna follow because the evidence looks like pretty much the same with the with the risk factors and of course that's not the same as uh causes of pain and and uh, clear uh treatment uh, plans or anything we, we have still a long way to go but we have already something to start get started with Maybe we can we can use and implement more of the psychologically informed practice with yeah. uh, people with chronic low back pain, and then that can then spread onto um, other facets of, of our care once we gain the confidence. Yes, yes, and that's yeah, as you mentioned. So that happened to many many of the participants of the studies, uh, both in our own own study and in in the review. So. Um, for some people that was difficult, like they said, oh, I don't have enough low back pain patients, so I don't get the practice. So they were just keeping it uh, tightly and they didn't, didn't really understand that it could be applied to other, but then there were, were other, other physios who, who got, it, got it and they, they started using, using some, some tools and, and uh, ideas in, in other, um, other kinds of um, patients and other kinds of problems. And also outside the research setting. That links us back to the individualized approach again, where yeah. perhaps the same, our same training intervention can have a different effect on the individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure, sure. Depending on the background and, and previous beliefs and knowledge and everything. And yeah, just how we, how we understand things because yeah, we know that <laughs> uh, there can be many different interpretations of, of, of something based on, on what we know previously. So. And one of the other the benefits in, in the second theme was the, the professional benefits. So the increased confidence as a result of learning yes. these new skills. And one of the, mm -hmm. the popular topics out there is, is our clinician burnout rates. Mm -hmm. um, so, and one of the, the sub themes was increased job satisfaction. So moving on from more of the, the fixer mindset and, and feeling like we have failed if someone is still mm -hmm. in, in pain towards more of that coaching aspect yeah. where we focus on meaningful function and bringing mm -hmm. people back into their activities and improving their quality of life. So could you yeah. talk to us about the, the kind of themes that, that kind of theme that emerged and what do you think about uh, ways that we can reduce burnout, symptoms of burnout amongst clinicians? Yeah, yeah I think those uh, that you mentioned were important points and those led kind of uh, some of the, uh, the participants towards uh, like seeing their work as more rewarding and fulfilling and uh, yeah 
better work satisfaction. Uh, some some even say say like in in our study in Finland. So some say that uh, they kind of reinvented themselves uh, as physiotherapists. Uh, like they were a little bit bored, and and now now they are like really really um, interested in their work again, and they don't see like the difficult patients as disasters anymore but more more like challenges and they are really looking forward to helping them so i think that's a big thing like to feel like that we are able to uh, be of use uh, to others and do something meaningful and uh, i think one one thing that is important there as well is uh, that our healthcare system supports that if if we have only one appointment with with the person who is in severe trouble trouble and we feel like like we need we are letting the person down so that's one thing that that we need to consider to help uh, professionals to uh, uh, be satisfied with their work uh, to have uh, the organizational uh, barriers removed uh, so that we feel like we can do our job properly and maybe maybe if we can can like uh, show that we are trustworthy in in for example using uh, the screening tools uh, so that we are not uh, mm, treating everybody the same amount, but we can uh, we can maybe um, plan our work more by ourselves, so we have more uh, freedom in in choosing. I'm gonna use uh, eight appointments with this person and only one appointment with another one. So I think we have better use of the resources, and that's also I I think positive for for the physios. Um, one thing uh, is. Uh, that is discussed uh, within this topic is also the empathy and I think it's, it's a term like empathy fatigue or something I don't know whether that's that's in English but um, uh, some people think that we need to keep distance uh, to our patients like be professionals and uh, not get involved in uh, in their uh, like uh, uh, emotions and that's maybe one thing that is tiring us if we are not ourselves if we are trying to pretend to be something else than we are uh somebody said i think it quite nicely that uh, we shouldn't try to think how it would uh like uh feel if we we were in the same situation that brings it too close to us but we should uh, rather think how it feels like to be in the person's shoes so we're uh trying to uh understand the person's situation of course we can never understand perfectly but uh, understand a little bit less wrong and uh, but still keep the limits so i think that's quite a good advice there as well definitely so being able to show that we understand and we really care about someone's situation mm -hmm. uh, but not taking on the responsibility of of yeah. their situation yeah maintaining yeah, that exactly. professional kind of boundary yeah yeah I think that's something that uh, in the physio school when I was studying that was not really clear. We were like told that we need to stick to the physical side and not not talk about these as uh, like social factors or any any other issues in person's life that are not related to our our work in the physical side uh, directly. And I think that's created at least here uh, some uh, kind of wrong kind of approach there that that is also I think fatiguing for for or can be fatiguing for the for the professionals if we try uh try to uh that well sorry i'm not clear but it, it's um yeah it can be really invalidating for the person if they uh, tell us something about 
uh, something going on in their lives and we're just changing subject so um, maybe maybe we can be a human to another human like if we think that if somebody is having a problem uh, trouble so we can still listen to them like we would listen to our friend or uh, or a sister or something so that uh, that's not still uh, that's still not uh, like I don't think that goes uh, over the ba uh, like barriers definitely so, so it's, we can still mm -hmm. have that real human interaction and, mm -hmm. and not just try and avoid the situation or uh, go yeah. straight to the, the box of tissues and continue on with our physical mm -hmm. intervention as someone yeah. is crying and expressing their, their really mm -hmm. important emotions when it comes to their experience yeah. of pain. Yeah, and that's uh, what quite many physios were reporting in these studies, like that they find it like distressing when, uh, when people, people go in, in those areas, but the training helped quite many, many uh, to... Uh, to be able to be present and, and listen even to the harsh stories. So when they understood that they didn't, didn't need to fix, fix that, but that was enough that they were there and listened. And, and people don't really understand the, the value and, and we're not taught the, the value. So, uh, and quickly, I'm an exercise physiologist and we aren't taught the value of, of this either. Mm -hmm. The kind of soft skills that are actually the, the hardest mm -hmm. skills to learn. And perhaps we need that in our own training from the start. It would make this process a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. And quite a lot of the participants suggested that all these skills should be taught uh, at the initial training. Like when you're an old fox there, so it's hard to learn, learn new tricks. Uh, so, so they wish they could have uh, understood these things earlier. So I think that's, that should be like uh, the foundation for, for any, any training, the communication skills. Uh, and I think that's something we could teach uh, students already quite in the beginning when it's otherwise hard to teach uh, some professional skills when they don't have the background. So I think this is something, something we could even start with and keep it going uh, throughout the whole, whole studies. Yeah, definitely. No, no reason not to. And I think one of the other the parts that I, I took was the, the identity of what it means to be a, a physiotherapist. So yeah. some people thought that they weren't doing something to the, their patients. Um, they were just sitting and, and, and talking. Could you, could you tell us a bit more about that, how it kind of like shifted their understanding of what it means to be a, a physiotherapist? Yeah, quite many described it uh, to shifting to a role of a coach or enabler of patients' own realizations. So I think that's maybe also one thing when we, when we were talking about the burnout thing. So um, shifting the role and I think uh, we're living a little bit difficult times uh, as physiotherapists because there are a lot of things like the science has taught us that are not maybe uh, true at the moment that we thought that were, were true at least for me what I was trained during the physio school so a lot of the things uh, don't really uh, <laughs> uh, are not the way I thought they were uh, and I think the uncertainty that uh, all this creates it can be frustrating and we don't have really solutions yet and that's what like where we need to just um, learn to sit with the patients and and trust that they are uh, kind of experts in their own situation and use that maybe more as a possibility than a challenge like that, that we are allowed uh, to be creative and patient-centered uh, and and like uh, keeping the patient as the star player, we are the coach.
uh, that it's not about us, it's about the patient. So uh, I think that's something uh, that seems like needs to be discussed during the training. Like, and I think in general, what is, what is physiotherapy? I think that would be uh, like uh, important discussion to go through more often for, for everybody. Like what is this actually what we are doing? doing or or any any rehab now i'm a physio i'm always talking about physiotherapy but of course it applies to any any rehab profession so definitely and and having that uh question as well what is what is high value what is valuable for Mm. the person um for their health and for their like uh, how can we lead them to self-management and i think some people kind of tie their own value as to if they can fix someone and they have all the answers but perhaps we need to turn that around a little bit it sounds like yeah 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 i i think so and uh you mentioned values i think that's that's an important uh thing we need to uh uh, listen to uh, the patient and see what is important to them because that's kind of uh, creating uh the kind of flow for the whole whole um like assessment uh examination and treatment like because we're uh uh, prescribing a lot of exercise that we know that most of our patients don't do and uh, w- we need to understand what is valuable for them what is what is important what they want to gain what are their goals uh, to create uh, ways of exercising or, or whatever our our treatment uh, is to to make sense for the patients and and uh, that they see why it's important and that, that it leads towards their goals so, so it's very much person-centered approach with our mm-hmm, recommendations yeah versus that yes. prescriptive approach mm-hmm. yeah yeah and we kind of know that uh it doesn't work <laughs> for some it works i have a couple of patients who who have done their like uh, exercises for 20 years every night but i think that's quite rare <laughs> uh, if only all patients were were as as committed and engaged mm-hmm. And I wanted to yeah. talk about the the challenges, the so the, the resistance questioning of, of the new approach. So uh, mm-hmm. I'll quote a, a sentence. One physiotherapist reported that he had abandoned the new approach and that he did not intend to incorporate it in his clinical practice because it, it did not suit his personality. And I found that so fascinating. Could you tell us mm-hmm. a, a bit more about kind of some of the, the resistance that you, you heard and your experience and or that you, you, you took from the research? yeah uh yeah that's that's an important uh topic and i think it's it's much about that these uh, biopsychosocial approaches it, they are quite different from what people are used to and, and and as mentioned there's a lot of cognitive dissonance and uh i think if um if we are trying to change it too fast so so the resistance might be too much for for some and of course the same way we need to uh like <laughs> Uh, sell the exercise to our, our our patients and find ways to for them to engage so we need to convince also also the the people who come to the training uh that this is a good way of working and i, I think quite important is that people get their own experiences uh if they only see some uh, guru trainer uh doing patient demonstrations so it, it might look like that this is just a show effect and uh but it's not gonna work for me uh, and uh, so we need to uh, create possibilities for for successes also also for the physios not not only for our patients so quite a lot of similar uh, principles seem to apply 
definitely, definitely we're seeing the, the commonalities there. So we have to look at what someone is willing to do, if mm. they're even willing to change their practice in the mm. first place, yeah. rather than just assuming and enforcing it upon them. Yeah, yeah. And maybe this is not for everybody. I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, and, and we need to accept it. So, um, so I think, uh, but uh, what it looks like so that if people get, uh, get good support and, uh, uh, and like long enough mentoring or some, some kind of training. So, so they can kind of get over, over the resistance and turn it uh, to a positive, positive thing. Definitely. And maybe that graded approach rather than going yeah. too much too soon overloading yeah. our, our own uh, colleague yeah. with, with the biopsychosocial approach just like we can overload <laughs> and exercise uh, yes um, yeah and there was yeah yeah i'm just curious uh, sorry to cut you off you go ahead no. again I've, I've got my i was just there was one example of somebody somebody said that they were just feeling they were just uh, like yeah really overloaded with new information after the training so this is a challenge when we uh when we have a for example, um, research uh, intervention where we're training physios who come from different parts of the country and we're collecting them to one place and we need to give them all the information at once. And then they are totally like, uh, probably if we're uh, not getting the full benefit of it, if people can't absorb that much. So maybe maybe it should be more, more graded. Yes. Definitely. Uh, it, otherwise, it's, it's overload, information overload, and they don't really have yeah. the time to implement it and experience it, it's so outside of their reality and their idea, their identity. Yeah. Everyone's and if there is, yeah. Yeah. And if there is a lot of resistance, so your brain is just going to go around, around those things that, that are like in contrast of your previous thinking. And, and then you're probably missing most of things that are talked about. That that's what it, what it sounds like. And, and also from own experience. So. Definitely. And I've, I have uh, this idea myself and, and I'm, you can invalidate my idea right now, right, right <laughs> here and now. The idea is if people were, if clinicians were to go through the approach themselves, so the CFT or any kind of biopsychosocial approach themselves as a patient, would you feel that that would make it uh, or would that be one of the training um, implementations for their own clinical practice if they can experience it themselves as a patient? Yeah, I think uh, that's something that uh, physios in our study reported if they had own uh, problems with back or something. So that was uh, uh, like important that they had the experience that, okay, this can change and they could, could go through the exercises themselves. Of course, we, we can't wish everybody to hurt their back or something because <laughs> just because we want them to <laughs> experience it themselves. <laughs> Definitely not. Yes, yes. But, it, but it, it's something people report it really really so so we need to utilize that if 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 it's uh, if that's a, like um resource available but also i think like uh observing other people working also from that perspective like uh, whatever uh, the shift of perspective is so i think it's worthwhile like not just being alone with our patient in our room but having somebody else observe us or us seeing someone else work so whatever whatever shifts so it's it's should be useful definitely and and some of the recorded uh demonstrations so both the demonstrations and also recording ourselves going through practice has been mm, yes. would have given us the, the valuable feedback 
Yeah, and I think one of the key skills would be for us to learn to reflect our, on our own work. I think the kids learn that nowadays from the first grade at school, but I think at least my generation hasn't really, really learned that. And and we are now we need to <laughs> need to uh, learn to uh, first of all think critically because all of this uh, fake news everywhere. So it's not just about our field, but uh, like to filter information and and. Uh, critically think what is what is actually true here and what is the right information can i trust this a piece of research and also also this uh, like uh, critically thinking about our own work why did something change i did something with my patient and and something changed but what was the actual reason reason for this to happen like was it our magic fingers or was there something else so i think that's the discussion we should uh, go more through in our own heads and and we should have communities that where we can have have those discussions definitely so the the value of critical thinking and self-reflection so we should be just mm -hmm. as critical of, of our own practice as we are of other people's practices and a couple yeah. of the other barriers that i wanted to touch on were the the patient expectations so the mm -hmm. idea that they needed a quick fix and also the barrier mm -hmm. of time so people get overwhelmed yeah. they think that they aren't able to apply a biopsychosocial approach if they mm. only have 30 minutes. Could you touch on, on those two barriers? Okay, first the expectations. So I think uh, that's something that should be gone through during the training, like how to deal with, with that. I think that would be really important because that's something all of us encounter and we are not really thought that at um, the initial training. And uh, um, I think also we need to somehow change the cultural beliefs about uh, pain uh, that would make our work work easier and to get as many people abroad uh, to uh, uh, on, on board to uh, like think about what they say what kind of messages they give to people so the message would be consistent from different professionals so that would make our life lives quite much easier in that sense um, and I forgot the second question <laughs> Or it, it was uh, in so we talked about the quick fix expectation, and then we're we're looking at time as a barrier. So time, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, that that was a common theme that people felt restricted by the time. Uh, but uh, when people got uh, used to uh, the new approach, so they found that okay, this is all right. But I think, of course, when we're learning something new, so we're uh, we don't uh, have kind of this kind of uh, Fluid practice, so it's maybe maybe taking more time. And what we saw in our own study, we actually uh, measured the length of the interviews and uh, and the whole appointments um, from a small board. So uh, we saw that the interviews actually became longer longer. But then the physios said that they were able to ditch all the unnecessary tests, which kind of uh, balanced it. So, so that actually they wouldn't need that much more time. Time in the end, they, they just focused more on the in, uh, like interview part and then maybe used uh, more like person-centered uh, and functional exam and where they didn't have to go through all the uh, orthopedic tests uh, with everybody. So, so that became more efficient. Uh, so that's maybe one point. And I think... Uh, one realization that is important that uh, we don't need to do everything at once. So, so we can just get started somewhere and, and then uh, take notes and, and continue on the next session. So I think that's something 
that that was an important realization for some some of our participants as well. And we, and we have to also think of the amount of time it takes for people to go into self-management. So if we can yeah. go through this process, they can get into self-management much quicker. Yeah. And if we go to yeah. through the perhaps a more traditional framework. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, if uh, when I'm working uh, now at the clinic, so I like to have longer first session, and then I can have shorter ones uh, afterwards. When we when we get really started, and and I have really the possibility to listen to the person's story and uh, uh, to get things clear at once, so that makes of course things easier. But it's it's not the requirement. We can we can do it differently as well if if we don't have that much time. So. It shouldn't stop us, but if, if we can uh, like choose, so so I think that's the way I would would choose to work. So I didn't wouldn't feel like I'm in a hurry myself. So so that would be optimal. And and Rika, I I haven't asked you the infamous question that I normally ask everyone because of the time, and I and I I'm, I think we can sneak a little bit of of what you do um, in your practice. And if you had the so with your clinical practice, have have you had when you initially encountered the biopsychosocial approach, did you initially have some resistance? But I think we've all had our own experiences with it and it would have, we would have had a lot of backfire effect initially. So I'm keen to hear your experience. Yeah, uh, so uh, I need to tell that I was kind of lucky that uh, I was working in a place where both of my bosses were psychotherapists. So uh, I had a lot of training in uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and communication stuff, uh, solution-focused therapy uh, before I encountered CFD. But but what I think I had been before I started my PhD in this project, so I had been really struggling with my uh, practice. Like I um, kind of there was a dissonance. I don't I don't know whether that's the right word, but uh, kind of we we had the psychological side understanding, but then we did a lot of uh, manual therapy and exercise, and I think there was something missing missing. And I think the thing was that um, I couldn't maybe just put it together that CFT has helped me helped me to kind of <laughs> put that all of that uh, together and uh, maybe the more more understanding about pain like uh, uh, about what what chronic pain what pain is in general that 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 was maybe maybe something um, that was uh, important for me to change change the practice and I think uh, at least I can say for myself that my job satisfaction has gone, gone up <laughs> radically uh, after because I think I, I had the, the kind of fixer mindset uh, uh, previously like I was thought, taught to do do things to patient and of course we did a lot of active therapy but uh, I don't think it was really patient-centered and one thing that uh, when I was interviewing the patients for the first study so I realized that uh, Actually, I hadn't really been present, like because the clinical reasoning process was uh, like taking too much space in my uh, my brain, and and I think I missed a lot of important things people were trying to tell me. So I think those were the like struggles for me in the in the beginning. So um, so it's not um, so yeah for me it was maybe a little bit different because I had the. Um, a lot of background in the in the psychological stuff but yeah everybody has their own <laughs> own uh, like process mm. to go you had the the theory basically of, of both kind of worlds and the the kind of 
what bridged that gap and gelled the two worlds yeah. together was the, the science of pain and learning mm. about the complexities the, and that kind of suited yeah. the biopsychosocial yeah. approach for you. Yeah, I, I think so too. I don't, I can't uh, like say that I'm there yet. I think it's a process that is still going on and should be going on forever. So I can't say that I, I get it, but uh, I think uh, I have the feeling that, uh, um, yeah, that the role uh, suits much better for me, me like this. And I'm, I'm like happy, happy working, working like this. Very different right. from what it was previously. Yeah. And it's so humbling to hear that you're still in the in your own journey still as a as a, one of the leading researchers in the field. Oh, but yeah, it's um, it's been kind of interesting now because I'm I'm being doing the uh, PhD, so I've been writing a lot and teaching a lot. So uh, I haven't been that much in a clinic. So I think the process is a bit slower for me me there than for somebody who is there full time because I don't get so much experience there. So so. For sure, and I think uh, if if some somebody would say that, um, yeah, we are there. I know know how this is. So I think then then I'm I'm getting scared. Like <laughs> then if if I hear myself saying that, so then then I'm in a big trouble. <laughs> Something has gone gone wrong wrong because there is so much to learn and new information all the time. So so we need to update our practice all the time, and I think that's something something important if we are talking about biopsychosocial approach now and we're learning to do do cft or act or whatever uh cognitive behavioral uh techniques and then uh we're still just uh, using that evidence in five or ten years so so we're gonna be in as much trouble as these physios uh probably were in the studies where where they have their previous knowledge so i think that's one of the most important things that we need to learn how to keep up with the new knowledge yeah the learning is a is a journey not a destination i'm sure that's a quote mm -hmm. from somewhere yeah. and i don't remember who <laughs> and, and that's quite ironic when we talk about learning the the other <laughs> question i had was what, what about the barrier of if we're trying to implement these biopsychosocial approaches in our practice and perhaps our colleagues aren't on the same page what are, what's your opinion on how we can help support clinicians in that space um yeah i think uh first of all um optima would be that if we go to a training we would go together with a colleague or something so we have at least someone who understands what we understand uh being alone alone in a community where others think differently so uh we know from research that we are easily so easily shifting back to the old habits because uh every every cue the whole environment leads us uh, towards that um and i think we should have um more i don't know how how it would be would be uh done in practice but uh open discussions i think we, we shouldn't preach about <laughs> bias like a social approach uh, too much but i think we should listen to the perceptions of the others who who think differently maybe they have something we can learn from and i think there is the uh, possibility to find common ground that we are not just trying to feed our our ideas but uh maybe there is a, a middle ground somewhere where we can get started from and then uh, then getting the discussion going so that we don't get the, the resistance right away that no 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 uh, you're the uh, 
it's like associate duty there and there and, and and I'm the biomedical guy guy here and 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 we're just we can't understand each other because it's not not true yeah so again, getting think, into yeah. the silos isn't helpful and finding out the we're all trying to help people in the end yeah and usually when we do uh, go through this kind of discussions so actually there is quite a lot we can agree on uh, and and then then maybe maybe it's easier to go on on with the discussions from there but yeah definitely we we can't do that alone so so we need uh, communities of practice here and and um yeah learning learning communities where where we can get the support and uh, if that's not at, at the own works workplace so maybe a facebook group would even help i don't know but uh uh, for me, it's it's been really uh, a privilege to be part of such a great research team internationally and here in Finland. So uh, and also uh, have some uh, some Facebook groups with uh, with some colleagues that uh, might not agree on everything, but to have really critical discussion and challenge one's own thinking. So I think that's something something that uh, that I find of great value. Having the supportive network uh, of Sort of mentors and other people on this same yeah. journey with you and being able to mm. uh, have these discussions open open-ended mm. critical thinking discussions and so it keeps keeps you on your toes and keeps you supported yeah. At the same time. yeah and and sometimes also be surrounded by people who think differently so not to get in in the own bubble bubble that that we so easily tend to go into so that's that's quite and i think uh for me, like uh, being on Twitter and and like reading reading not just the posts but the discussions <laughs> under them, so so it's a quite nice way of uh, like keeping the own thinking thinking like open because uh, yeah, there are I think quite uh, interesting uh, like uh, discussions uh, from people that don't agree, but where where we can learn a lot. Definitely, definitely. That's, that's so true. And, and hopefully fighting the, the bubble that social media algorithms tend to create. So we're always not just seeking the information that confirms our bias, which is a bit ironic because mm. so far you've confirmed all my biases, but hopefully it's <laughs> valuable for, for the listeners out there. And one of the questions that I, I love asking uh, people in the research field and, and as research, working as researchers, is if, if funding, and we'll say if time and funding weren't, weren't issues, uh, weren't constraints, what kind of study would you like to conduct? You had unlimited time and unlimited. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, I would like um, to understand uh, better uh, the um, uh, like the cultural uh, beliefs about uh, pain, especially low back pain, and how people react to different uh, different uh, media and uh, news and uh, words. From uh, we have already some uh, some research around that, but that's something something I would like to do. Of course, when I start thinking, so I, I'm gonna come up with a million other ideas, but that's the first one that came to my mind. So um, yeah, to understand the patient perspective better, better. Um, from different different perspectives so uh that's where i would would want to go that that would be very interesting to see if in different countries and cultures the idea yeah. of what pain is and the meaning people have behind pain is, is slightly different yeah yeah and if i have like 20 people reading the same uh 
newspaper article about low back pain, so how they see, how they perceive it, how what they understand, stand and uh, is it positive or negative message for them or reassuring or scary or, or stuff like that. And I think that kind of research is uh, already underway abroad, but I would like to do that in Finland as well. Awesome. So if there's any billionaires listening, we've got an idea for you, Rika. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. And if, if our listeners wanted to contact you or find out a bit more about you, where, where would they go? Uh, well, uh, I'm on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. So I think those are the easiest ways to, uh, I'm also on Facebook but it, and, and Instagram, but they are more like private, uh, private accounts. So, so the professional accounts are there and for the Finnish listeners we have this company MoveDoc uh, so we have a web page and all, all the uh, social media channels but it's only in Finnish so so basically Twitter would be the best place to follow Awesome so um, there's maybe one or two people uh, who are from Finland in, in our group so I'll, I'll pass on that message to them privately personally. Thank you so much Rika for your time we've got some valuable gems there and, and keep up the, the great work that you're doing and hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much for, for inviting me. This was uh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you.